Hello and welcome to the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient Hebraic context of our faith. I'm going to start the episode this week with a bit of a confession. I just sat here talking for 30 minutes, looking at my notes, and didn't realize until the end of it that I had a setting wrong on my computer and nothing that I had said had been recorded. So I'm starting over now, ready to give it another try. I'm also sitting here on Super Tuesday, thinking about the American political scene and uh, feeling a bit apocalyptic. And so the topic for the day is actually going to be apocalypse. I want to start by asking, what is it that you think of when you hear the word apocalypse? If you were to Google that or search for it on Amazon.com, you might find books like Countdown to the Apocalypse, Why ISIS and Ebola Are Only the Beginning, or The Apocalypse, The Undead World Series, Mass Extinction Event, Wasteland, and Apocalypse Z. But to quote my friend Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. The word apocalypse did not mean to its original audience what it means to us today. The word apocalypse does not have an inherent within it images of catastrophic world wars and the end of time. I actually taught a class on the book of Revelation last year, and many people thought I was crazy for tackling the topic. I come from a faith tradition that tends towards amillennialism, or realized millennialism. And one of the things that that means is we tend to not focus on the book of Revelation as being a prophetic roadmap uh, laying out in detail the future events of the end of the world. And I think to some extent that has caused many in my tribe to be historically a little bit less interested in the book of Revelation altogether. And yet, the um, Pepperdine Bible Lectures had recently done a whole series just on the book of Revelation. And as I studied it, nothing inspired within me a passion for social justice as much as that series. And I was surprised because that was not necessarily how I had thought of the book of Revelation in the past. And so I think Revelation and apocalyptic literature in general is something that we ought to recapture and reclaim from the world of science fiction into something that is intensely relevant to our world and our walk of faith in the here and now. The book of Revelation has a stinging social commentary on the empire of Rome. In it, you see a polemic against the empire of Rome. I think in many ways... Apocalyptic literature was the first century equivalent of a political cartoon. We see passages that are almost like a satire eulogy for the fall of the nation of Rome. And in it we see a challenge against excessive nationalism, materialism, consumerism, and even slave trade directly mentioned. And so I think that if we look at how the first century audience understood the nature of apocalypse, what it was saying about their world, and how they should live within it, we can see much more about our world and how we should live in it today, in the here and now. And we don't just have to wait 
for the fulfillment of future prophecy and the end of the world, but we can take these truths that we learn from the book of Revelation and apply them to our faith journey every day. I think that as we study the book of Revelation, we'll see that it is not so much about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. And it's not so much about rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. One of the things that I um, really love the most beyond the Pepperdine Bible lectures in terms of studying the book of Revelation is an audio course, one of the great courses by Professor Craig Coaster called The Apocalypse, Controversies and Meaning in the Western World. So much of what I say today is taken from his perspectives. Um, There's also a number of books that are excellent resources. I'll I'll put some links up on the notes at thedustcast.com. There are really too many books for me to try to list them out here on the podcast itself. And so as we look back at the book of Revelation, what is it that we find within it? One thing is quite a lot of praise and worship. I found it interesting that the word hallelujah only occurs four times in the entire Bible, and all four are in Revelation chapter 19. The book of Revelation is actually one of the most musical books of the Bible, both in terms of actual songs within the text itself and of later songs that Christians developed out of the text of Revelation. N.T. Wright read the book of Revelation from beginning to end one day as a teenager, and then later said, The funny thing is, I'm quite sure I didn't understand what on earth it was all about, but I can still remember the explosive power and beauty of it. The sense that the New Testament I held in my hands had a thunderstorm hidden inside it that no one had warned me about. Revelation is poetic, musical, and artistic. It is visual imagination. The great power of Revelation is the power to wake us up, to instruct our weak religious imagination by means of visual enhancement, and to enable us to see the present moment in divine perspective. As I've mentioned, in terms of literary genre, Revelation is an apocalypse, and it is also an open circular letter, by which I mean that Revelation was written as a letter to the churches, and especially the seven churches that are named in Asia Minor, and it would have been passed around from church to church and read aloud in worship. Imagine if you were to go to worship this Sunday at your local church and your preacher read the entire book of Revelation out loud as the sermon for the day. But, uh, In Revelation 2 and 3, we see these seven messages to the seven churches, and we often call them the seven letters. But really, the book of Revelation as a whole is one letter, and each church would have heard what was written to all of the other churches. If God were to write letters to the churches in your community today, what do you think he would say to yours? And by apocalyptic, I mean a very specific category of literary genre. Apocalyptic literature was written by Jewish and then by Christian authors from about 2 or 300 BC until about 2 or 300 AD. And as apocalyptic literature, 
Revelation is distinct from all of the other New Testament books, which reflect genres of biography or history or epistle. And so one of the reasons that Revelation can seem so strange to us is that we still write biographies and letters and histories, but no one has written an apocalypse for 1,700 years. So what exactly is an apocalypse? Apocalypses are narratives that disclose things about the heavenly realm and the course of life on earth. They often involve visions, highly symbolic language, and angelic guides. Apocalypses grew out of the prophetic style of ancient Israel and wrestle with the challenges of life under oppression and persecution. One of the great questions of apocalyptic literature is, if God is in control, how can life be so difficult? They are intended to interpret present earthly circumstances in light of the supernatural world and of the future, and to influence both the understanding and the behavior of the audience by the truths that they disclose. Apocalypses often view the cosmic powers of evil, sin, and death as personified forces with very real and tangible manifestations in our world. Apocalyptic literature is very similar to prophetic literature, but it is distinct. They differ in terms of which facet of reality they focus on. So, for instance, to the question of why are we suffering, the primary prophetic answer is because the people of God have sinned. And the primary apocalyptic answer is because of the cosmic powers of evil. And so both are true. When we look at the complicated reasons for suffering in our world, there is the effect of our own sin and the sin of others. And yet there is also this idea of the institutionalized and cosmic powers of evil and death and sin itself as a personified force. And so when the prophets look at why the people of God are suffering, their primary focus is that the people of God have sinned. Whereas when apocalyptic authors look at why there is suffering in the world, their primary focus is because of those cosmic personified forces or powers of evil. Then to the question of what should we do, the primary prophetic answer is repent. And the primary apocalyptic answer is persevere. Persevere until God brings victory. So like prophecy, the goal is not so much speculative foresight, but theological insight. And far from looking to the end of the world, the authors of apocalyptic literature were looking for the end of empire. They were looking for the renewal of the earth in which a humane societal life could be renewed. Prophetic and apocalyptic authors do speak of the future, but they do it in order to disclose what is at stake in the present. They give warnings and exhortations that are designed to startle people into living their lives differently and committing themselves to a different future. I think sometimes the visions of the future that prophetic and apocalyptic literature presents 
is not so much just one definite foretelling of what will happen, but visions of what could happen. And you even see the prophets in the Old Testament sometimes explicitly say, if you do not repent, here's what will happen. But if you do turn and repent, the Lord will hear you, and here's what he holds out in front of you. And so the future depends on our actions today. And often the point of prophecy and apocalypse is to show us visions of the future in order to get the audience to live in a different way and to influence the future that they choose. So as we try to get our heads around what the nature of apocalyptic literature is, there's an Old Testament story that I believe illustrates the way in which an apocalypse can be seen as unveiling spiritual realities. And the story that I'm thinking of is not apocalyptic literature itself. So I want to be clear that I'm not saying this Old Testament literature is an apocalypse, but I think that it represents as an event what an apocalypse then does in literary form. The story is of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15-17. through 17. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so as we sit within our present circumstance, whatever that may be, and see the suffering of the world, and the issues that we have to contend with, we may say, Alas, what shall we do? And John, in the book of Revelation, says, Do not be afraid, and tries to open our eyes so that we may see what is already present. He's revealing the spiritual nature that is behind the current earthly nature that we can see with our eyes. And Revelation is not the only apocalyptic literature in the, literature in the Bible. It is the most well-known, as, especially as an entire book. But other examples include Daniel chapters 17 through 12, and then the smaller so-called synoptic apocalypse, which is found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. The apocalyptic struggle against these personified cosmic powers of death and evil, I think, can also be seen in several Pauline passages. So I think that you can make an argument the Apostle Paul also had an apocalyptic worldview, at least in some ways. One example is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, where he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so here you see Paul talking to death as if it's a person, much like we see Hades, the place of the dead, walking around in the book of Revelation, and we hear that Hades itself is killed and destroyed, and that is the end of death. So death and Hades are personified and dealt with directly. 
Similarly, another good example is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And in the modern culture wars, we so often see our fight against human rulers and against physical authorities. And yet Paul here says that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And so you see that apocalyptic perspective of the spiritual truth beyond the earthly reality, of these personified forces that need to be dealt with directly. And as we look at institutionalized evil and the great power of racism and oppression and other forces in our society, I think we can see how these conceptual or abstract ideas are really tangible forces that make a very real impact in our world. So as we move beyond apocalyptic literature in general and refocus just for a little bit on the book of Revelation, I want to look at the original context and sketch just a few brief notes about what we might know of some of the early Christian communities that would have read it in the first century. The exact dating of the book of Revelation is debated, but I would place it in the 90s under the Roman emperor Domitian. And persecution of Christians at the time appears to be largely localized and sporadic rather than being universally enforced throughout the empire. So often we may think of the persecution of Christians under the Roman empire as being this empire-wide top-down kind of mandated persecution. And there are examples of that, especially later as uh, the Christian movement becomes more well-known. And early on, we get the stories of Nero, who was crazy and persecuted many people, but specifically did persecute Christians in Rome. And yet, throughout much of the first century, Christianity was not well understood by the Roman Empire. And it was originally a sect of Judaism and was understood by the Romans as a sect of Judaism. And so Christianity was not universally singled out as uh, something that must be persecuted from the emperors on down, but rather local citizens who often felt that the odd behavior of their Christian neighbors was bad for business or bad for the community would then slander them. And in some communities, the persecution was worse and more violent, but in some communities, it was less. And so try to imagine perhaps local Christian stonemasons or carpenters, tent workers and leather workers, people that participated in the local trade guilds and other economic associations. And as these uh, Roman citizens and others in the empire start converting to Christianity and learning more and more about Christianity, they become uncomfortable with sacrificing to the emperor. And that might be something that happens at the guild meeting. And they become uncomfortable with sacrificing to the gods of the Roman pantheon. And yet that is something that is done in public festivals, which were always religious in nature. And so these Christians stop going to the temple and stop participating in the feasts. And their neighbors don't understand why. 
and the Roman blessing on their trade guild and being in good standing with the emperor who is being worshipped is critically important to their economic security. And so they don't like this new Christian behavior, and it creates this sort of grassroots persecution. And Rome at the time was a place of great economic potential. In cities with prosperous economies, people were not so much preoccupied with the shadow of Roman persecution. Rather, they were preoccupied with the brightness of their own economic future. And Christians, too, felt the pull of this materialism and this opportunity for economic gain. And the cult of emperor worship was not so much imposed from the top down as much as it was developed from the bottom up. The cities of Asia Minor competed for the honor of building temples to the emperors, in much the same way that we in the United States compete for which city will host the Super Bowl, or worldwide cities compete for who will host the Olympics, because it brings a spotlight on you, and it brings great economic opportunity and travelers and visitors. And so if a city in the first century could build a temple to the Roman Empire, sorry, to the Roman emperor, and could host gladiatorial games and religious festivals, it was not only a tremendous honor to them, but it brought wealth into the city as well. And so into this complex setting where some churches were suffering under persecution, And there were, in fact, martyrs who were killed for their faith. But others were accommodating Greco-Roman culture too much. John writes this apocalyptic letter, recording the vision that God gave him, with the intent to both comfort and challenge his listeners, to comfort those who are being persecuted, to reinforce Christ's love, and to call them to perseverance and yet to challenge those who are too accommodating to Roman culture, who are benefiting so much from its economy and its politics and its nationalism, and perhaps not seeing their primary identity as being in the kingdom of God and to the King and Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at our own countries, and I know that there may be listeners from many different countries which is humbling to me. But a great many of us are in powerful nations. And the experience that we have today is really the polar opposite of what the first century church experienced. Their experience of empire was very different. And John in Revelation is not at all kind to empire. We see a longing for the fall of Rome because of the evils that it brings on the poor and the outcast. And for those of us on the inside of empire today, we have to ask, what would God have of us as we find our primary identity under his kingship and our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? How can we bring the justice that he desires to the least of these? As we close, I want to look at maybe just a couple last things that as you perhaps do some further reading in Revelation could be helpful It's a complex book, and I'm not going to attempt to even scratch the surface of its riddles. But there have been a couple big themes that have been helpful to me. One is that I find the narrative of Revelation to be cyclical. And so you can't necessarily outline it or map it as a linear chronology. And those commentators that seek to find a step-by-step, precise, 
prophetic prediction of end times events often try very hard to map out a linear set of events. But I just don't believe that Revelation is linear. John is repeating various visions that circle around his main themes. And as he spirals around the point and looks at the situation from many different angles, he sees these different visions which reinforce the same ideas in different ways. And we get this cycle of images and don't attempt to understand it as a linear set of events, but rather just seek to understand the point of each image as it comes and how they reinforce one another. Also look for differences between what is heard and what is seen. And that may seem obscure, and so I'll give just one example of what I mean. When John hears of the coming Messiah, what he is told, and so what he hears with his ears, is first about a lion. And we get these images of the conquering lion of Judah. And that would have conjured up all sorts of imagery of power and might to the first century audience who was familiar with the idea of the Davidic Messiah, the Lion of Judah, and of nations themselves being described as powerful conquering animals in, for instance, the book of Daniel. And yet when John turns and sees with his eyes the Messiah, we're never told that he sees a lion we are only told that he sees the slaughtered lamb. And I think to the first century audience hearing this book read aloud in their church, that contrast would have been shocking. You build up this expectation of the lion, and then you're told of a lamb that looks as it has been slain, which is a disturbing image. And that shocking contrast is supposed to be important to us and to cause us to think about the point. And I think the point in this case is that the Messiah that we follow does not conquer through power and might and military force, but rather through self-sacrifice. And in the only battle scene that we're given in the book of Revelation, the blood is the blood on Christ's clothing that is present before the battle even begins. And so it is his own blood. He comes to the battle already bloody because he is the Messiah who has been slain. So the only blood in the battle is his own. The only weapon used in the battle is the sword coming from his mouth. And I have heard that interpreted as a sign of power. And yet, I think it is too literalistic to picture Christ as clenching a piece of iron between his teeth. This is clearly a metaphor for the word of God. And so what we're given is a Messiah that conquers through the word of God and through his own blood. And so again, I think that this is a powerful book and one that, that is confusing and that has been neglected and yet that we should reclaim as a book that speaks powerfully of social justice, that critiques empire and that calls us to faithful living here and now, every day, as we seek to understand how we can live out our citizenship in the kingdom of God, how we can be faithful and persevere and look to the salvation and the victory that Christ will bring, but then also determine what that future 
reality means in terms of what we will choose for our own lives here and now. Well, thanks for joining another episode of The Dustcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. As always, you can find notes at thedustcast.com. As I said, I will put up several books that I found helpful on the study of Revelation. You can find me on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe on iTunes. If you like what you hear, please leave me a rating or a review. I think you can also subscribe on most of the major podcast services for Android and other devices. If there's one I've missed, please let me know and I'd be happy to submit to it. Uh, I'm always looking for feedback. Let me know what you think, what you've enjoyed, what you haven't, what you'd like to hear next. You can email me, jason at theduscast.com. And with that, go and have a blessed week.